tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, I'm so excited we were able to work this out, kind of a last-minute booking, and we had an opening tonight, and I'm glad we were able to work it out. You know him as a frequent guest on the program. He is a former congressional candidate, also former CIA agent, and an all-around great guy, Eric Burkhart. Good to have you back with us, sir. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Good to have you with us, and Timing could not be any uh, more appropriate with what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, tell me, when you served in the CIA, did you spend any time in Ukraine? Are you familiar with the country? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I am familiar with the country, and I was involved in some operations that were uh, connected to Ukraine and Russia uh, and some of the stands. There was always something going on in that part of the world. Um, now, when I uh, was just a brand new officer, uh, we were hearing about this character named Vladimir Putin. Um, he was the director at the time of the KGB. And he was coming out of his career in the KGB to get political. And we knew that we were going to have something really tough on our hands. Um, so I'm, I've been aware of him and followed him for, for many years. What is it about Ukraine? Why would why would Russia want Ukraine back in the fold? Is this just is this like the domino effect they talk about like this is the first domino to fall and then all of the former states of the former ussr are going to be pulled back in militarily or is there a special unique reason why ukraine is being targeted you know there's a lot of uh personal uh, feelings involved between russians and ukrainians uh, in 1941, with Arbor, Operation Barbarossa, when Hitler stormed his way through the Eastern Front into Russia, uh, the Russians have always held a grudge, thinking that the, the Ukrainians uh, really kind of let the Nazis in and they let the German armies in without really putting up much resistance. I have heard that most of my career from Russians that I would deal with is a really nasty grudge against against the Ukraine. So so from uh, world, you're talking about World War Two, that the the resentment goes all the way back to World War Two. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it goes back even further. It goes back to the days of Stalin and Lenin. And uh, there, there's always been a, a grudge. Uh, and uh, Ukraine, Ukraine has always uh, been very aggressive about uh, educating its people, uh, 
trying to make good, solid connections with the West. And uh, Moscow has really resented that. Uh, the, the Russians spend a lot of money on weapons and tanks and you know, and the Ukrainians really haven't done that until just recently. It's been in the last three or four years that they've tripled their defense budget. Uh, but there's there's a lot of uh, animosity there uh, between both sides, actually. Well, let me ask you, Eric, why now? Like, what what would be the reason now for Putin to want Ukraine and and what exactly do you think his intentions are? Would it does he want to officially annex Ukraine back into Russia? Does he simply want to put in his own puppet leadership uh, in Ukraine and allow it to uh, sort of have like the appearance of of still being an independent state, but with his uh, hand chosen leaders? What do you think is, is the reason for the timing and what is his goal here? I think your your last uh, your last thought was probably the the most likely. Uh, I, I I know that when he went into Crimea, it wasn't as complicated because it was obviously a strategic move uh, that was uh, meant to give the Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, strategic access to the oil and also the the Black Sea in and out the shipping lanes. Um, and I think we all kind of thought it was going to end there, um, which I wouldn't have been smart on, on my part, because he is so unpredictable. And when I say he, I mean Putin, because he is a one-man show. There is no one that is going to stand up to him and say anything to him. He makes the decisions for the Russian Federation. And uh, that's where we are. Um, when I heard Condoleezza Rice today, it was the first time I actually got a little chill uh, because she's commenting on how this person isn't someone that she really recognizes anymore, uh, that his behavior it seems very erratic to the person she used to have to meet with when she was a member of the Bush cabinet. We're hearing even like um, there's a buzz online about the idea that Putin could be sick. And I don't know if they're saying like like sick, like like physically sick or, or there's talking about him being medic, uh, psychologically sick, that there's something psychologically wrong with him, which is a scary thought when you think he could start a nuclear war. You know, there was a time when uh, when Boris Yeltsin was uh, running the show in Moscow, when uh, they were actually asking the United States for help in dismantling some of their nuclear arsenal. Uh, when Putin came in, that that the any thought of that went right out the window. And it was really sad because we had a window there. We had an opportunity where we might have been able to work together and end this possibility of a nuclear winter. Um, but it, it, as I said, it changed. Uh, there was no way Putin was going to give up uh, his uh, access to nuclear weapons. But for a very short time, we we had a thought there that maybe something positive might happen. Now, where we are as we sit here and look at the scenario, I, I'm a student of uh, military uh, of the militaries in the region, uh, and I, I have to say I am. 
very uh, surprisingly surprised that the Ukrainian armed forces have held together as they have. Uh, they have done a tremendous I mean, we're job. hearing there about some- like like feeding uh, uh, fighting from like street to street uh, that that just average people are now taking up arms. And I know you have context there. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But before I do that, I want to ask you sort of the big question of, of the interview, which is there is this idea. It was announced that that Putin has put his nuclear arsenal on high alert and in response uh-huh. to that, the United States has put its nuclear arsenal on high alert. Are are we sort of um, approaching like the Cuban Missile Crisis type of a of a risk? I mean, uh, should we have school children tomorrow practicing hiding under their desks <laughs> to go back to the 1960s? That's, uh, I mean, are, oh, are, that's are, an interesting are, memory. Are, are we are are we really in a in a possible risk of a nuclear exchange? I I don't know how to approach that question because answering it in the wrong way really is a is a, a huge mistake. Uh, I will tell you that the Russian nuclear arsenal is it's in pretty bad shape. Uh, it's it's not hasn't been modernized. They they haven't been keeping things uh, nice and pick and span and shiny like they should, uh, that doesn't mean they can't fling a handful of ICBMs in our direction. Uh, but it is my understanding that they have had real difficulty, uh, not only with uh, uh, keeping their uh, arsenal up to date, but even having technicians who don't find a way to sneak out of the country to go get a better job in the West. Um, you so gotta, you gotta wonder if there's if there's like one of those dummies books like the care and maintenance of an icbm for dummies you know like change change the oil every three months you know make sure you make sure you you properly add coolant uh to the head of the missile i mean you could just read that but uh before we get into what's actually happening in ukraine and and we can only make light of these things because that's how we survive Uh, you know you you can't Uh take everything so seriously but um, before we get into your contacts in Ukraine and what's happening there with the street to street fighting and the resistance uh, against the Russian troops, um, talk about what's happening in Russia. So I'm reading stories that the Russians themselves are 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 out on the streets protesting uh, in solidarity with their Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Tell us what's happening actually in Russia. I, I wish there were more to that than there actually is. Uh, there, there have been a number of demonstrations uh, supporting uh, peaceful negotiations and trying to find a way out of this that doesn't involve uh, weapons. But the, uh, the Russian police and military, they, they shut these things down very quickly. And the average on-the-street Russian knows uh, where his best interests lie and they also have had to sit through the propaganda the non-stop propaganda of ukraine is your enemy they're a bunch of nazis uh you know look at how much they've benefited since the the fall of the soviet union and we're still trying to save rubles uh just to put a meal on the table 
so a lot of propaganda. Uh, I, I hope we see more uh, demonstrations uh, in support of Ukraine. I'm, I will not pretend that I am not biased uh, in this fight. Uh, I absolutely am. And uh, and I, I think the things that are happening now have been really uh, surprising in, in a good way. If you're just tuning in, our special guest tonight is Eric Burkhart. He is a former CIA agent. He has contacts within Ukraine. We're going to talk about what's happening inside Ukraine in just a moment and talk about uh, what his contacts are telling him about the street-to-street fighting. Before we get into that, though, one last question on the bigger picture. There was a news story today about Russian soldiers being given gas masks And this was thought as a precursor to the possibility that the Russians may be prepared to use uh, chemical weapons uh, in the fight against the Ukrainians. Is that on the table? Do you think they would actually use chemical weapons? Absolutely. And there have already been reports, false reports put out by TASS and other Russian uh, uh, news agencies uh, that uh, the Ukrainians have been using uh, chemical weapons, which is absolutely absurd. Uh, and they've showed film of Russians wearing these masks. And I think what it is, is it's just a way to set up their excuse for having the masks and the equipment of a chemical uh, warfare. Uh, there is nothing that I would put beyond uh, Putin. For him, everything is about winning. And um, I will tell you, uh, when we get uh, when we get back, we can talk about this some more. But there's a real issue that people need to keep an eye on, and that's the air superiority issue, um, because the Russians should have put that to bed on day one. And they are still uh, we are still looking at MiGs falling out of the sky. And so um, that, I think, is a very important thing to keep your eyes on. And this, to some degree, um, and one of the questions um, that I wanted to get to was the problems that the Russian military is having. There was a very funny video of a group of Russian soldiers that ran out of gas in their tank. And this Ukrainian filmed this interaction where he offered to give them a ride to a gas station to get a to get a, a can of gas, which I thought was hilarious. But, you know, that's the, you know, that's when you you bring like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram into the world of the modern day war. Can you, you can only imagine what we would have had if if that was around in World War Two, the the tremendous uh, videos that we would have had. But uh, he offers them a, a, a ride to a gas station to get a can of gas for their tank that ran out of gas, which I, I just I can't stop laughing about it. It's so hilarious. But to, to what degree does this expose the Russians as not being ready for prime time. I mean, you talked about their nuclear well, arsenal may not be ready for prime time. It sounds to me like their planes are falling out of the sky. Their tanks are running out of gas. Um, uh, Putin may actually be exposing himself, you know, showing his hind end by going up the flagpole and doing all this, showing that he doesn't really have a lot to back up uh, his military threat. 
Um, you know, uh, we've got to be careful how far out on a on the wire we step, uh, because uh, the Russians went into this conflict with a ten to one superiority in soldiers and in fighters and in and in tanks, and uh, that's something that you can't ever forget. Um, and uh, uh, the Ukrainians are having to face this, uh, using a lot of the same equipment. Uh, I might add. So the Ukrainians aren't at an advantage in any uh, shape other than that they've got literally the average man on the street can go get a firearm and ammunition. They're arming not just the military, but they're arming civilians. What are you hearing from inside Ukraine? Is the average man who's not in the military taking up arms and fighting street to street with Russian soldiers? When you uh, when you bring up the question of advantage, um, I spoke with a, a, a longtime friend of mine named Craig, who's uh, who's in Ukraine right now. Uh, and he was talking to me about a an older man who's actually 84 years old, an old Ukrainian man that he visits with uh, in the park. Uh, and they talk about the World War II and just how things have gone. And he sees this old man with an old Russian machine gun. Uh, and <laughs> this old man says, look, I, I took out some Nazis in 1941. I'll take out these bastards as well. And uh, that is an advantage, my friend, right there. Because you know, uh, you've got most most, most militaries Russian. aren't set up to fight against civilians. When you got like house to house, street to street fighting, that's very difficult fighting. Yes, and you've got uh, who knows what percentage of the average nineteen twenty year old Russian uh, conscript or. Uh, regular duty soldier who doesn't would rather be uh, anywhere but to Ukraine uh, at this point. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, nationalism propaganda within the Russian military. Um, there's more in the Air Force and certainly more uh, in their submarine fleets and in their uh, Navy. Um, something that's very important to keep an eye on, and I've been telling people this is a real key. Uh, as I said earlier, the, the, the Russian Air Force has not been able to gain air superiority. And the uh, this conflict started with the, the Ukrainian Air Force with about uh, 70 uh, fighters, Sukhoi and MiG, maybe 25 uh, other makes, um, I don't know how many attack helicopters, but they had to build from scratch. When Ukraine became independent, the Russians left them nothing but junk. So the, this new air force that Ukraine has has is, is, is been made in the last four or five years. But the Russians are going to start focusing much more on their naval resources in the in the the Black Sea. Um, that's a huge. The Russian Black Ukraine. Sea, the, the the famous Russian Black Sea fleet. What would they use? Um, I, I'm not super familiar with the geography there, but how would their their sea fleet play a role in in uh, taking Ukraine down? Well, they've already had one. Uh, uh, offensive landing. 
uh, with troops on the ground in Marianopol, I think is the name of the city, uh, and not too far from Crimea. And what I expect them to do is to make use of any air resources they have connected to their fleet in the Black Sea, um, because that could offset some of the problems that they're having gaining air superiority. It's possible that their, that their air resources in the Black Sea Fleet are some of their best pilots. Uh, I, I don't know. But it's my understanding. I've, I've been told to keep an eye on what Putin does with his uh, sea resources, um, uh, that we're going to see some movement there. Uh, and we already have. But, um, you know, he's going to have to do something to get air superiority. Um, if it's not already happening, if it's not going to happen tomorrow morning when I wake up, you know, there's going to be it's going to be real difficult to keep this offensive operation moving towards the West without air, without control of the air. Any more thoughts on what your contacts inside Ukraine uh, are saying about what's happening and 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 how the Russians are doing in this fight? Um, we thought maybe this thing could be over in a matter of hours, and now it's days have gone by. I don't think it's realistic to expect the Ukrainians to hold them off forever. Uh, what sort of the on the ground analysis of of how long the Ukrainians can really stay in this fight? Well, there's a huge propaganda machine churning out of Kiev and Lvov and, and Kharkov, as well as what the Russians are putting out of Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg. The Ukrainians are subject to a, a lot of propaganda, and they believe that they can win this conflict. And their attitude from the people that I've spoken to is we don't have any choice but to feel this way because this is our life. This is our freedom. This is everything for us. Uh, this isn't uh, just a, another game around the corner. This is everything. And um, the civilians are lining up saying, somebody give me a gun. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to be able to stand up to a T-72 or a T-80 uh, heavy battle tank. But um, history has shown us that, that the, the will of the people can achieve great things. Um, again, I think we need to keep an eye on what happens in the sky. Um, and also, it's also important, I've also been told that Putin is putting a lot of pressure on his diplomatic contacts in Belarus and in the former stands, we used to call them, forgive me, we used to call them the tin cupistans, the Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Um, the, the Russians still have tremendous resources in those countries. Uh, the Russian ruble is propping up a lot of those governments. And Putin is going to put more pressure every day on these countries to represent Russian interests diplomatically. He's already out there saying, why haven't we heard from you? Why aren't you standing up for us in the U.N.? You know, uh, where are you? Um, 
So that pressure is so there. he's got he's got leverage <laughs> there. Let me ask you lastly before we switch to politics about the financial implications of all this. I got into this a little bit in my news segment. Um, the latest news is that the U.S is going to get uh, Russia, the Russian banks, many of the major Russian banks will be will be blocked from the international banking system called SWIFT. We also know that Russia is a major exporter of oil. Um, Russia being blocked from the international banking and also this war could certainly affect the supply line of oil. And I know there's there's natural gas and other resources as well. Um, we're already looking at almost four dollars a gallon gas in some of the red states right now. And we're looking at almost a hundred dollars per barrel uh, for oil right now. And this thing is just getting started. Uh, what do you see as sort of the mid and longer term financial impacts to us here in the United States as a result of this? I, I, I don't know that it's reached the point that we are going to really take a big hit because it's, you know, the American investor has been very careful about putting money in Russia, uh, even in any uh, international vehicles that are connected to Russia, like SWIFT. Um, I, I I think that, uh, you know, personally, my background is I'm I'm half French. I'm 100 percent Texan, but I'm half French. <laughs> and I was raised in France uh, with my first language. Um, you know, I still speak only French to my mother when I see her. And I was very proud of France when they came out very quickly to get behind taking away SWIFT and uh, other diplomatic means of punishing Russia. Germany, on the other hand, I, I was left speechless. The Germans being so uh, unwilling to take any chances that might negatively affect their economy. So the Germans are the um, new. The Germans are the new French. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in, in, in that sense. It, it, but but they they have that big gas pipeline deal with Russia, which is is a big thing, and people don't realize how big of a deal that is. That that is a a massive part of their economy. That gas pipeline, isn't it? Yes, uh, and that is, I'm sure, the the reason behind it. There's a lot of money uh, involved there, and the, the the Germans are looking at you know people getting ready to retire, and and I I, I do get that. Um, but I'm looking at anything that would bring this horrible situation to a close sooner. Uh, and that's why I was uh, a bit disappointed uh, that Germans didn't get on board with everyone uh, else. But um, they are now. From what I understand. Yeah, that sounds like they're so, a little bit late to the party, but they're they're there. Uh, let's switch gears and talk right about now. politics. Uh, President Trump spoke at CPAC over the weekend, and he predicted that he would win his third straight presidential election in 2024, which I thought was <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Laughing, that me. was that was so Trumpian, you know, to, he's going to get his yeah. he's going to win his third in a row, he said. That's the kind of, you know, yeah. thing that you get from Trump. Um, but it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of people that are starting to look at DeSantis 
in instead of Trump because it's almost like you get Trump without the baggage with DeSantis. You get everything you like about Trump, but you don't get the like fights with Rosie O'Donnell and the middle of the night mm. tweets and and some of the things mm. that that have caused you know, even a lot of Christian leaders came out and said they weren't voting for Trump because of his three marriages and because of things he's done on Twitter. And I, I think a lot of people liked Trump's policies, but didn't like the man. And with DeSantis, you almost get the best of both worlds. You get a guy who's uh, got a great military track record, a great track record as a governor. He's a family man. I believe just married one time. He's kind of like the good Trump and people are looking at DeSantis. And I know you wanted to weigh in on that. When uh, my my feelings about the Santos in particular, I, I, about a year ago, I I started getting the requests for money. That is something that really burns my behind. If you'll excuse my rudeness, <laughs> I I don't I don't like being asked for money in that way. When we don't even have a declared candidate, we haven't had a primary, we haven't had a convention. Uh, and I am the first to say, you know, Trump's idea of diplomacy goes nowhere with me. But the man is not a politician. He's a businessman, and he is what he is. And anybody that expected anything different, well, sorry, but here's the reality. Um, I, I expect Trump to be the nominee. Um, I have maybe someone I would prefer, you know, we all have our preferences, but um, I, I'll tell you, uh, there's not much there that I wouldn't pick over what we've got now. So um, <laughs> I, I do yeah. not know. Do you think DeSantis would if, take the Veep position or is he would just rather stay a governor and be an executive in charge of, of, of the whole ball of wax instead of being Veep? I don't think he would take a, a veep position with Trump. I think there would be too much baggage there. We don't know uh, who Trump is going to decide to go after and if he gets reelected. We also he don't know what policy. Mike. What, what, what do you think about Mike Pence? He's starting to kind of lurk. He's appearing here and there and and making policy statements. Uh, do you think Mike Pence is another sort of good Trump option that people might look at in, as an alternative to Trump? I, I, I think Mike Pence is a great guy, and he's very intelligent. We've got a guy down here in Texas who claims to only be running for re-election, but everyone knows he's got his eye on the White House, um, and that's our governor. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I like the senator from Kentucky. Uh, he's someone I've always uh, agreed with. Um, so there are people out there that are qualified there are Democrats out there that are qualified that are so much more qualified than what's sitting in the Oval Office. And, and, and I think I, there's no doubt Biden is this is it. He's not going to try for a second term. He would be in his 80s. Isn't that right? Yes, but he says he's going for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, so let, let me hit you with my... Run. Let me hit you with my last question of the night, then, and we'll wrap it up. What does it look? What does it look like this fall? I mean, it, it appears like everything that you could possibly pray for is in place for a red wave. 
And the only thing that scares me about that is anytime you're that overconfident, it seems like things don't go uh, as well as they should. And it just seems like there's even Biden supporters, those people that voted for him, they're all in hiding now. No one even wants to admit they voted for Biden. Biden is like the new Trump in that people don't want to admit they voted for Biden at this point. Yeah. And you, you see people at the grocery store upset at the meat counter. They're upset at the gas pumps. Is is this a red wave like we're, we've never seen that's going to happen in 2022? Um, Jim, I'm I'm 56 years old. I believe what we're going to see in November this year is going to be more uh, a blowout than anything we've seen politically, uh, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, I'm convinced of that, and I I hesitate to get overconfident. I'm <laughs> not overconfident. It's just a perspective that I have. I do believe we are going to, uh, well, let me rephrase that. The Republicans are going to be sending the opposition flying. And so it should be because the policies of the government we have uh, in office now do not reflect the average middle America that we've come to know and love. That's my perspective on it. Very good. And and I want to give a plug for your book. The book is called Muka Barat Baby, and it is Eric's story of becoming a CIA agent, CIA agent, and then being poisoned by one of his contacts. It's a fascinating book, and it's a true crime spy thriller. And you got to get this book. It's available in Kindle, uh, paperback, or hardcover, all available through Amazon.com. And that's Muka Barat, M-U-K-H-A-B-A-R-A-T, Muka Barat, baby, my life as a wartime spy for the CIA. An easy way to find the book would be to just type in Eric, E-R-I-C, Burkhart, B-U-R-K-H-A-R-T. Type in his name, Eric Burkhart, in Amazon in the search box. It'll take you to his book. And Eric Burkhart, thank you so much for your insight tonight. Always great to have you with us, sir. We'll have to have you back again soon. Thank you so much, Jim. And uh, your comments earlier about mortgage rates and real estate, right on the money, all of it. I listened to it with rapt attention. Great. And you are exactly right. Thank you so much, sir. All right. God bless. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, sir. Wow. One of our great friends of the show, Eric Burkhardt, and uh, he's a listener, too, by the way. Uh, Before he was ever on the show, he was a listener, and he's a regular listener to the show. And so he and I chat uh, quite a bit uh, uh, before he comes on. We we trade notes and talk back and forth, and he always reminds me of how he's a regular listener uh, to the show and uh, always a great guest to have on. All right. A lot coming in in, uh, the next few weeks. Uh, we're looking at a guest uh, for next week. I can't announce it yet because it's still in the works. We don't have a confirmation yet, but if we get this guest, it'll be very interesting. One of our most interesting shows of the year. Uh, if we can get this guest landed for next week, all of that coming up on the next episode of Jim Paris live. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris live. God bless. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.